The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Holy crap, Ilya. Guess what episode we're on? I know what episode we're on. We're on episode 30. You know that because you just told me five seconds before I hit record. That, that's true. But this is a real milestone for us. I mean, 30, I mean, really, you can now listen to one episode every day in a month, basically, and mm-hmm. not not repeat. You can listen to, if you want to, <laughs> if you're like, you're binging our show, you can go back and every day you can listen to another episode. And you should. You should totally go back. You, you know what? We got some great, great interviews. And this one is no exception. The one we have today is fantastic. But before we get into it, we got to talk about a little format change. Now that we've hit 30 episodes... We're going to change it up a little. We're shaking it up. You know, I mean, we've been doing this for a while. We had some ideas before we started. Some are working, some aren't. Maybe we go back to it later. Who, who the hell knows? We just want to try some stuff to make it a little bit more interesting for you, the, the listener. listener. <laughs> All right. Well, this is going to be fun. So uh, what we're going to do is ixnay on the story way. No, wait. That's that. That's or bad. way or a stay. That's it. That's the one. We're going to. Man, we're gonna, you don't know Pig Latin for I'm, shit. I'm not a. I'm not literate with Pig Latin. I just, mm. I just, I just fake it. So anyway, uh, the war story, which I know some of you love, is not going to be on the end of this episode. Instead, we're going to take some war stories. I'm going to bunch them all together, and we're going to have a super cool war story special episode. It's just be all war stories all the time. You'll be able to really tell when we reuse music in the war stories. <laughs> That doesn't happen very often. Yeah, no, we're we're not getting rid of them. We're just we're just gonna kind of make it its own special thing, and it's gonna make hopefully our episodes a little bit more streamlined. That's right. We're gonna these these episodes will be a little bit shorter. And then if you just say, eh, I'm not with the war stories, I'm gonna say, what's wrong with you? But if you're not, they're all with, awesome. Every yeah, one if you're not with the war stories, then you can skip over that episode. And if you are into the war stories, oh man, this is gonna be great. We have war stories that have that have never been heard, including. Going way the back to episode one. Episode one, that's we, right. We never, we, we recorded a war story with Jason Wingrove, who was our very first interview at NAB. And never played it. We never played it. Why? Because we never had an episode that teased Jason Wingrove. That's right. And then, Ben, you've got a cool war story. And I know you have a cool war story. So we're going to throw our own war stories in there, too. It'll be great. All right. So, so Ben, who is on the show today? Uh, this is one of my favorite ones. Uh, this is somebody who I've always wanted to meet and uh, and was fascinated. I don't want to I don't want to pick favorites. I don't want to say that someone's my favorite DP because that's unfair. I love every person we've ever had on here, but it was Newton Thomas Siegel who shot one of my all time favorite movies, The Usual Suspects. But do you talk about The Usual Suspects? I, I talk so much that Ilya, uh, you <laughs> would like literally grab the mic and, and guide the conversation to get me off of it. And it wasn't for a bad reason. We had limited time with Tom and we didn't want to waste too much of his time on uh, on only one of the uh, best movies ever made, or at least certainly one of the best movies of the 1990s. But, but you know, we also talk about Three Kings and some other great, great movies during the, the yeah. interview. He's, he is brilliant. And honestly, I don't want to wait even another second. Here he is, Newton Thomas Siegel. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. So I'm here in Mar Vista in his house, in his awesome house, with uh, Tom Siegel. Thank you. Welcome. Uh, thank you very much for coming on to the Cinematography Podcast. It's a pleasure to be here because I'm at home. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I'm here, too. For once, uh, we're doing an interview together, so this should be fun. Yeah, yeah. We're trying out a new thing. We're just screwing up the format left and right. So I usually start uh, the interviews with an idea that was put into my head by a DP a long time ago who then later denied that he'd put that idea into my head but that's that cinematographers in general come from either a a position of when you're reading a script you're either seeing a composition in your head or you're um, or you're imagining how it's going to look like you're going to light it and so I sort of just to kick it off with everybody when you're reading a script what's the thing you see what what is it what's in your mind's eye as you're reading Uh, you know you're you're supposed to say that when you read a script you visualize it and you see it all in your mind and I have to say that the first time I go through a script, I'm really reading a story. And it's really, for me, it's much more uh, following the thread of character and, and suspense, drama, conflict, and how real it feels to me, how truthful it feels. The images start to come 
or the the tonality or the feeling for it starts to come but really the first read through for me is very much about the sort of truthfulness and how much the the content itself is speaking to me so i find that that's actually my first go around with the script and then it's formulating kind of how you translate it into pictures and sounds so uh, can you walk us through what your process is of, of how you go about doing that if you're given a script and you and you so you've read it for the first time you've kind of gone through the characters are there any specific thought processes that you tend to go through as you're reading a script as you're formulating the the look or you're formulating your approach oh, well I think the first thing is um you know you you are imagining the characters just like when you read a novel you know you're formulating images of characters and environments in your mind based on description or based on, you know, your own personal experience. I think what happens a fair amount in people reading screenplays is that they tend to formulate images that are based on other movies Mm -hmm. because, you know, so much of filmmaking is derivative and and so much of it is about uh, what's come before. So you can be reading a horror script and it's being sort of fueled by the history of horror films. Mm -hmm. So there's a certain degree of imagery that comes along with that that I think, in my mind, you have to sort of fight because, uh, at least for me, I'm not really that interested in repeating what's been done before. I'm kind of interested in where we can take cinema next. So it's usually the second time that I'm going through a script that I start to formulate more and more of a kind of idea of how you could shoot the film or what it would look like. But I also try, if it's before I've met the director, I I try not to get too far down that road because I'm hoping that when I meet the director, there is a already kind of a vision or or a direction that they are looking in and that they're looking toward. So I try to give up some of what I saw but I also try to absorb what how they describe it to me. Mm-hmm. And hopefully there's enough commonality that you realize I like what this person's saying and I think they're going to like what I have to say. But sometimes, you know, you you meet someone and, and they describe something to you and it's really far from what you saw or want to do and uh, you realize it's not the film for you or they realize you're not the person for them. Yeah, that's sort of my go-through on the script. And uh, let's talk a little bit about your your background. So uh, your earliest stuff, as far as I could find, was mostly documentary, correct? I began uh, making little movies in high school. They were sort of kind of more art movies, I guess you would say. I was also painting at the time. So after uh, high school, I got involved with a thing called uh, the Media Study which was marginally attached to the University of Buffalo, but it was a program that brought a lot of, at the time were called either experimental or personal or independent or avant-garde filmmakers, depending on your nomenclature. And I, I got $50 a week and helped run the little, there was a little uh, theater. Um, we built the screening room. We had a little room for uh, with equipment that we would, teach people in workshops how to use and oh, then cool. I would assist whatever uh, uh, filmmaker came through like Paul Sheritz and Hollis Frampton and Kenneth Anger and you know weird kind of filmmakers <laughs> like that. Um, and this is in Buffalo, New York? That was in Buffalo, New York. Yeah. Is, that, I, is that where you're originally from? I grew up in Detroit and I moved to Buffalo right at the end of high school, in the middle of high school. Was it specifically to be involved in this media arts organization? No, I moved to Buffalo. My, my parents moved to Buffalo. Oh, okay. I was in the middle of high school. and uh, uh, n- Nothing against Buffalonians. I just wonder, like, you know, we're going to Buffalo, like, you know. And, you know, I did, uh, I did my, uh, one of my first trips back to Buffalo a couple of years ago to shoot Marshall, which was pretty surreal. Uh-huh. Um, but so I started out making more, I guess you would call them, you know, avant-garde cinema mm-hmm. or non-narrative cinema. And then um, met some people and we sort of got interested in doing things that were more socially relevant or at least relevant to what was happening politically in the world. And we started making documentaries 
I did a number of documentaries in Latin America during the um, the height of the guerrilla wars. In yeah, El you directed Salvador. one of them, right? Yes, I, I had a partner named Pamela Yates, who was a sound recordist, and an editor named Peter Canoy, who was an editor, and I was the camera. And the three of us formed a production company called Skylight Pictures, which continues to this day making documentaries. Coming out of an art background, I was sort of always more interested in the medium and the, and the way that you could control image and sound and the relationship as much as I was about you know, making films about social justice or historical change. So I gravitated toward narrative filmmaking. And my first feature was directed by Haskell Wexler, and it was based on one of our documentaries. So I, it was kind of a... Wow, what natural. was it like working with Haskell Wexler? You know, it was, it was fascinating. It was, um, I was too naive and knew too little about, about feature filmmaking to be as intimidated as I should have been. <laughs> um, I think if I was to do it again today, I would be much more intimidated. <laughs> working with Haskell was, it was fascinating. It was like my film school because it was in Nicaragua. And a lot of the people we worked with uh, had never worked on a movie before. Haskell didn't speak Spanish, and I did, so I was sent down early to start helping set things up. And I didn't really know enough about, you know, feature filmmaking to know any better. And I just sort of wanted to fake my way through it, but shoot <laughs> fast enough that he never felt like he was, you know, being slowed down or being held back by an So you were DPing for Haskell. I was the DP and he was the director. Yeah. That's crazy. So, I mean, I, yeah. I mean, I know you're saying like, you know, you were too young to maybe realize what a towering figure Haskell Wexler was. Yeah. What's it like shooting for someone who is known for being one of the greatest DPs of all time? Well, it was interesting, you know, because I assumed I'd learn a lot about uh, lighting and, and cinematography. But I also, I noticed the first couple of days, and I, this must have been just instinctual, but I noticed that he was a little uncomfortable talking to the actors and was sort of micromanaging the camera a little more. Yeah. And it wasn't so much that I wanted, you know, him to get out of my, my <laughs> wheelhouse, but I saw that the actors were getting kind of antsy. And I remember driving home from work with him on the second day and sort of just mentioning something to him about like, you know, I think they're, you know, they're, they're getting, uncomfortable <laughs> that you're just you know and at that point he he I think he realized it too and he really focused a lot more on the actors and ironically in terms of lighting or anything he was almost more like wanting me not to do anything just to shoot like I had done on my documentaries so I think you know I remember like sometimes I'd want to put in a little fill light or something and he would go don't mess with nature and I go, okay, you know. Is that, I, is that how he found you from the documentary work? Yes, yes. He was very interested in, in uh, Central America and uh, had done a number of documentaries himself that were, you know, real groundbreaking documentaries. Haskell had a script about Nicaragua that was um, a story that was, took place during the time of uh, the dictator Somoza. And when we met him, uh, Pam Yates and myself. It was a time when Samosa had been overthrown by the Sandinistas and the U.S. was clandestinely funding a counter-revolutionary army to, mm -hmm. to sort of overthrow the Sandinistas. And we had done some documentary work in that area and we said to him, he said, why don't you, know, why don't you make it contemporary? Because so often, particularly in those days, political subjects were dealt with in Hollywood much later when there was a clear vision of history back on the event. So he um, loved that idea, and he actually helped support a documentary that we made, which proved to be the first time the, the Contras, as they were called in Nicaragua, were ever filmed. And it was what really exposed the, this clandestine war against the Sandinistas. And he was fascinated with that experience, so he modified his screenplay so that it would reflect what was happening at that time. And because I was so intimate with the 
subject, and it was based on my experience, and he liked the way the photography looked, he asked me to shoot it. I think in his mind, he probably figured, well, I, you know, it's, I can, <laughs> I'll just shoot it, and, or whatever, but, and it's ironic, because at the end of the movie, you know, I don't know that I learned necessarily that much about lighting. I wasn't sure what I learned, and then I went on and I was doing a, a very small film for PBS, a little drama, and I realized I was blocking things with the kind of fluidity of the camera that had totally come from Haskell, and I don't, because it was coming to me naturally and uh, instinctively, but I realized, you know, this is what Haskell left me. He He really taught me how to make the camera another actor in the scene. Mm. And, can, can you talk a little bit about that? Like, to me, that's the, the kind of process thing that I think our listeners would be very interested in is like, what's a, a counter example? What's an example of how to, yeah. how to not do it? And, and how do you go about, and, and I feel like you still do that. I feel like, I feel like that's one of the things about the, the strikingness of your imagery when, when, uh, you know, when looking at your movies, you know, whether it be the usual suspects or one of the X-Men movies or three Kings or whatever, like, I feel like I'm in those rooms. Like, I feel, I feel like a participant a little bit how do you go about doing that? Well, I think, you know, part of it is because I, I do come from a very sort of character-based viewpoint on cinema that I like the actors to drive the camera. You know, I really, I like them to, for the, for the camera's position to be interactive. And what I mean by that is there's a lot of cool things you can do with a camera. I can spin it around you 360 degrees. I can fly through a window and, you know, go into a big uh, close-up of you in a train. We can do all those things now more than ever. But what to me is always sort of the most fun and, and I really get a lot of inspiration from is when movement of actors takes you from one place to another, when the, the energy of a character sitting at a table boils over and they come out of their chair and they fly into the face of another actor, that that energy carries you from that close-up of them getting more and more angry into a two-shot. I believe it's a, it can be a very organic relationship between camera and actor, hopefully without the camera's presence being overwhelming or, dis or distracting is perhaps mm -hmm. a better way to see it. Just like in, you know, a, an actor, you know, two actors can be like jazz musicians where they're interplay of what each one of them is doing complements and enhances and brings out the other one yeah but doesn't dominate you know now how does this manifest uh and i always because we've we've talked to a, a number of people who've done kind of like giant superhero kind of movies and you in a way kind of set the stamp by doing the first x-men movie and and i feel like that is a style that has kind of carried through and evolved but when you're making something like that i assume a lot of those movies are heavily storyboarded and pre-vised and all that kind of thing. Now, do you have a hand in that, or do you throw that out the door when you're doing the character scenes, or is that only for the big special effects, you know, extravaganza sequences? Well, the first X-Men, when we did that, you know, it was, Previs really wasn't um, much, to, it didn't really exist in those days. Yeah. And we did some storyboarding, but not much, and, and to be honest, the... The first X-Men was much more done like a traditional traditional movie. There was a little bit of kind of very early crude previs in mm -hmm. the, uh, like the F-16 scene with Halle Berry. But the, the technology was such that the film was, that film was done much more like a, um, you know, traditional drama. And Brian Singer at that time, that was his first visual effects movie, and he wasn't really a comic book guy. He didn't come out of that world, so he approached it much more like a um, like a drama, like a normal, you know, character-based drama. And his, I think his, as much as he's become a, you know, a maker of these, you know, X-Men's and Supermans, his foundation really is much more sort of reality-based cinema. He, he was not a world builder in the sense of creating this whole fantastical world. He approached it much more from a more traditional character-based drama. Having said that, today, you know, the technology has evolved so far and the effects 
are so much more not only important but almost a taken for granted part of the process that obviously the previs is much much more important i try to get involved in that as much as i can a lot of it is goes on during prep and you're one of the struggles of the cinematographer is being torn between a lot of the logistical stuff you need to do in preparation for a large-scale movie with a lot of the development that's happening in the previs because it's a slow process that's very labor-intensive. So you can go and you can make suggestions and comments, but you know, you're not really sitting there over the shoulder of an artist saying, you know, uh, go a little to the left, go a little to the right. Uh, I'd like to interject here yeah. just real quick. This was uh, X-Men... Uh, it's around 2000. It's like, I think probably the, the third time maybe you'd worked with Brian Singer. How do you feel like uh, the visualization process changed from like usual suspects and apt people? I mean, do was, uh, I know that a lot of DPs and directors, uh, they, they, if it works and they work a lot together, they sort of develop their visual shorthands and yeah. uh, take us back to like usual suspects. Take us back for that development process. Usual Suspects was a real challenge in that it was a very dense script. I believe we had 30 days to shoot it, all practical locations. So Both sides of the continent, too. Like you were, you, Parts of it are in New York, parts of it are in L.A., right? Well, we just did one day of second unit in New York. Oh, okay. It, was, it, wasn't even, it was literally me and Brian. And, oh, really? Yeah. It was, that is one uh, of those movies that I feel like if you gave me the raw footage, I could cut together the final movie. I've seen that movie so many times. Oh, my goodness. You probably know it better than I do then. <laughs> Um, but yeah, we just did in New York, we really just sort of did a skyline and the opening credits of Usual Suspects, we were in Hoboken waiting to sh sunrise to shoot the New York skyline for a sunrise shot and Brian was asleep in the car and I was just uh, standing out there with the camera and there's a big Pepsi sign that, I don't know if it's still there, but it makes these crazy reflections in the water. So I just started shooting the reflections in the water and uh, then the sun started to break and I shot the, the, the sunrise shot. And uh, when Brian and John looked at all this footage, I shot of these weird reflections that I was afraid of getting yelled at for wasting film. <laughs> they turned it into the uh, opening credit sequence. But Usual Suspects, you know, was a, a, a huge challenge because 30 days and a dense script and trying to make a suspenseful movie and... I wanted to keep a certain nervousness and tension about the film without being overt about it. And we had some of these very long dialogue scenes in Chaz Plum and Terry's office. We had like 22 pages of yeah. script in this tiny little office. So I sort of developed this technique where I would combine an imperceptibly slow zoom with as much of a dolly move I was as specifically going to ask you about that because yeah. I love the way those intercut together like they don't sound like they should cut together and they create such an amazing tension in all those scenes the tenser it gets well it's when you physically have eight feet to move and you have three minutes of dialogue and you want to have this feeling of closing in and in and in and in on the truth how do you make that last for three minutes yeah so I would be on the Zoom just going as literally slow as it goes without stopping. And the dolly grip had the biggest challenge of all, which is actually going imperceptibly slow. When you see it on film, you it's hopefully one of those things where, as the character is speaking, you're getting closer and closer to them, but you don't even realize it. You know, you don't notice it until maybe you're at the end of the monologue and you go, wait a minute. Mm -hmm. We're in a close-up now and we were at a wide shot of the movie. But I always noticed uh, I, that movie came out while I was in film school. And I always noticed that it would mix like, you know, when you're in film school, you kind of have kind of purest, stupid ideas that immediately go out the window. But I, I would notice in a lot of those scenes, it would be like one shot of Chaz Palminteri zooming in. And, the, and, and then and then the other shot of Kevin Spacey would be dollying in or it'd be another shot of Chaz Palminteri. And, and, and it's mixing those two. Yeah. Like, I, 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 I'm sure people have done it a million times. I've never seen it used exactly in that technique. Mm. And it builds amazing suspense and one of the things I love about that movie is and, and I wanted to ask you about it, it's like everybody in that movie is kind of holding their cards close to the chest yeah. how do you how do you 
are there c- cinematography ideas you have about how to film someone who doesn't want to tell he's giving you no information or he's giving everybody the wrong information intentionally like is there a way to go about that well to to express the fact that somebody is lying or is being deceitful i suppose is as much a um an acting thing as it is a camera thing but it's also you know in a movie like usual suspects you want to have this sense that you're not sure you can believe anybody but you don't want to suspend belief in any individual person because that's the whole part of the gag you know it's a massive misdirect I mean, that whole movie is like, it works like a magic trick. If you walk into it, as I did the first time, not knowing anything about it. And I, and I really do think that some of it comes down to the cinematography is like somebody else would have maybe tried to make Kevin Spacey's character verbal look more sinister or more whatever or whatever. But like somehow you managed to never point the finger as a, as a filmmaker, you never, as from my point of view as an audience, I don't ever know who it is. And in fact, you know, I think that, you know, the whole the whole time you're trying to believe the same thing that Chaz Palminteri character is trying to believe, which is uh, that it's Dean Keaton uh, is the bad guy. And and to me, like the cinematography plays a huge role in that. And when you talk about how you kind of put yourself into the scenes, I think that I, I think that there's something more to that. So is it more of an instinctive thing or is it something that you're consciously kind of architecting as you go? In, in terms of. In, in terms of creating this mystery, in terms of in, ter- oh. in terms of pulling off this this magic trick on the audience, which right. like right. there's a handful of movies that do that as successfully as as Usual Suspects, if that I can only think of. Like well, I mean a lot of, yeah, I mean I think a lot of the the success of the twist in Usual Suspects is in the writing and mm-hmm. and, and in you know performance and execution. But I think from a cinematography point of view, you know there was that idea of just always playing the characters uh, even across the board where you're not putting any uh, weight or emphasis on any one individual one so that you can you can never give any tip-offs or, mm-hmm. or giveaways so to speak and then there's you know you have the the things like the scene in the elevator where you purposely construct the the shooting in such a way that you don't see who did it mm-hmm. and that you don't you know, you're you're not sure about what is what and who is who, and even from the very beginning when we're by the dock and there's the push in on the quote hiding place. Unquote, exactly. Yeah. And you're you know it's a clear misdirect in that there's nobody there. We don't see a figure. Nobody says someone's there, but you immediately assume that. And it's like a pile of rope or something right yeah. there, right? Yeah. 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 So. I don't know that there, I mean, I think in terms of specifically making a character, you know, if you're trying for a misdirect, the best thing you can do is make the character sympathetic and make the character kind of accessible so that when you are misdirected at the end, it's really deceitful because you've been led to believe this person all along. I I think that there's a lot of sympathy and misdirection also in Three Kings. And I think that John Ridley did it. And really, for me, it was the first time John Ridley appeared on my radar was was Three Kings. But uh, uh, David O. Russell, I know, did the script, did the screenplay for that. What what uh, what was the process of visualizing Three Kings and sort of uh, I know that. Well, I, I don't know, but I'm assuming that maybe Usual Suspects maybe played a, a hand in, uh, in you coming to Three Kings or you coming to that, that experience. But um, tell us about how you got involved and what it was like reading that script. That okay. was one of the first screenplays, I think, that, that uh, I'd ever read from David O. Russell, and I was blown away. I thought it was fantastic. Three Kings. Well, actually, before you even start, could you settle a bet that Ilya and I have? Because I could swear in American Cinematographer, I read that a great deal of that was cross-processed at Crest. The, the lab that I don't know if they still exist or not. Did you cross process? Did you cross process and do some other kind of bleach bypass or something? Yeah, the Three Kings begins with a skip bleach process. Uh, and the one unusual thing about that was that we did the skip, skip bleach in the negative. It's usually done in a print, but when you do it in the negative, it's very, very severe. Mm-hmm. When our heroes leave this sort of safety and the comfort zone of the military base to go off on their adventure, it changes into uh, a cross process. And I 
found a. I just threw threw some shade at Ilya for telling me that I was wrong because on the in the car ride on the way here, I I was like I could swear yeah, that I, there was bleach bypass and cross processing, yeah. but it doesn't make sense that they would both have been done. No, nope. and, and I said yes, you could only process a negative once, or you'd have to do it on the positive. But I don't know what you're talking about, so I was like two I, different I sections of the movie. Aha. Uh-huh. Aha. Uh-huh. So, so I was right in two ways. I was yes. going to say that we were both right, except you're not right. So <laughs> <laughs> everybody's right. The cross process is interesting because I found a, a, a film. It's really a slide film that still photographers use, but I loved it when you developed it as if it's a negative. So you're basically developing it wrong. You're, you know, Kodak shudders when they hear about these things. <laughs> But I love the way they're like, you shot it on film. We love you. It just looked to me. It expressed what was going on in this in this story. The the skip bleach provided a kind of this this sort of wasteland of the desert that the U.S. soldiers found themselves in when in the first Iraqi war. I've had many veterans tell me how it really looked. It felt like the way that. uh, it did during that period of time. And you even shot that part in Mexico, correct? We shot a little bit in Mexico, a lot of it in Arizona, and a little bit in El Centro, California. Mm-hmm. But the cross-process is taking the still film. I had Kodak make 150,000 or 250,000 feet of, of it in a um, larger rolls so that we could use it for motion picture. And then we went to this lab crest um, to develop it and as if it was a negative. And it was it was a really risky process. It when I started Three Kings, I, I loved the script. I went after the movie. I had other offers. I just went after that movie, and, and I really had to chase David O. Russell a little bit, and uh, he, I think, reluctantly hired me. <laughs> and then I went to meet him to sort of shot list and go through the script, and I opened the first page and. We started to talk about it, and I realized that he was not someone that I would be able to to actually shot list with or to talk about it. I realized I had to show him something. So I started to shoot tests, and I shot lots of tests. And finally, when I got this sort of recipe of the skip leads and the cross process, he loved it, and he agreed to it. But now we, it was from Warner Brothers, and we had to get the studio to agree. So we went into a screening room, and David was on my left. And at the time, the head of the studio was Lorenzo de Bonaventura, who I had never met. But he walked into the screening room, and he sat down next to me and barely said hi, and he just said, roll it, to the projectionist. And the test started to come up. And I remember sitting there thinking, what other movies could I get? Who else had called me about a job? Because <laughs> I'm going to be fired. Oh, there no. There's no way that a head of a studio is going to look at this test and not fire me. Did, like, is this a setup? <laughs> like, did David set me up for this? Or like, what? what? Was it entirely your idea to go with that look? Well, it was my idea. And, I, you know, David, I don't know about now, but at that time, you know, he was not, he was, came out of more of a writing tradition. He wasn't yeah. a technical guy. It's his um, third movie, if I'm not mistaken. It was, yes. So it was, you know, the technique was my idea, but obviously the um, it was it spoke to him, mm-hmm. and that's clearly why we, uh, you know, he, he agreed to go do it. But the amazing thing was that at the end of that test screening, Lorenzo just turned to me and said, um, to both of us, and he said, well, if you can make it look like one cogent movie go ahead do it you know and I remember uh, one of the reasons I loved doing it was that it was a photochemical process and there was no way that you could chicken out you know you couldn't yeah you couldn't later go back and say you know what it's too strong we're not going to do that we're going to do something different yeah today you just build a look in resolve or something like that and slap it on whatever you know well or somebody can come in you know the digital intermediate is a great tool and it's given us great freedom but it's also given great control over people beyond the cinematographer mm-hmm. so it's very easy now to take a 
dark, moody movie and make it bright and shiny or vice versa. How much do you, I, I always wonder about this, how much do you think as a cinematographer, since you're authoring the image, how much do you think you should be participating in that? Or like, you know, like, do, do you know how to use any of those? To, like, do you do any of your own color correction or know how that stuff works? Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm very, extremely involved in it. You know, mm-hmm. Bohemian Rhapsody, I, I spent over a month on, on the um, digital intermediate. It's critical. I think in today's day and age, the, the work you do in the, in the DI is, is every bit as much the work you do on set. And people know that. And I think if you want to have authorship over the images in your movie, you have to be involved in that and you have to fight for your involvement a lot of times. The colorists that are out there today are very talented. Directors more and more know these tools and what they can do with the tools. And visual effects um, are becoming more and more a staple of even the simplest movies. So you have a lot of people that today are having their hands in the kitchen of the image, much more so than when when I started. When I started and you went to the lab for an answer print, it was you know red, green, blue, cyan, yellow, magenta, darker, brighter. That was it. So yeah, they could make it, you know, usually the fight was over brighter. Right, and the DP always wanted it darker, and the and the director and or the studio or the producers always wanted it brighter. But today, it's a much all of the 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 freedom and the and the fabulous things we can do in that digital intermediate is also what makes your images much more vulnerable to other people's interference. So it's a, a joy and a curse at the same time, you know. It's right around the era of the sort of the, the real dawning of the uh, digital intermediate, but was Confessions of the Dangerous Mind a, a digital intermediate? I, I know that I remember there was a lot of attention being paid, of course, to uh, Or Brother Where Art Thou, which it was like a year or so so earlier. And I remember very specifically the uh, the color grade in Confessions is, uh, is remarkable. And there's a lot of fun uses of color and there's some dark moments and bright moments and all kinds of stuff. Can you tell us a little bit about how Confessions came to be? It's funny, Confessions of a Dangerous Mind has a direct lineage to Three Kings and even to my earlier work in that I read the script before there was a director attached and I loved it. And I actually tried to get Brian Singer to direct it. <laughs> and Brian Singer did get attached to it at one point and I wasn't available which was killing me and then he fell out of the project the project sort of fell apart but Clooney was attached and George had worked with me on Three Kings and he called me and he said would you do this movie with me and I said I I would kill to do the movie and I called Brian to sort of get his blessing because I knew that he had wanted to do it at one point and I said do you mind if I do it and he was very gracious Brian, you know Brian was very gracious in saying yeah go ahead and do it and I was fascinated with the possibilities of the digital intermediate which was brand new at the time and I knew that the days of being able to bake a look in by shooting on film and doing the sort of processes like I did on Three Kings were coming to an end because producers would be saying, you know, well, we'll do that in post. We'll do that in post. So we shot on film. We shot on every kind of film imaginable. Color infrared, black and white infrared, 16 millimeter, 35 millimeter. Infrared. Cross process. That's Ilya's jam, by the way. Ilya's constantly, uh, like, uh, hacking cameras to make them do infrared things. Well... In that one, we just got infrared film and shot it. Uh But we had committed to doing uh, a digital intermediate. And I did a lot of tests, a lot, a lot of tests with a colorist. We were shooting in Montreal. I made them hire a freelance colorist who, um, to this day, still works at Technicolor. Nice. And uh, Nico Ilias was his name. And he was really my partner in crime because I, I, I really wanted sort of an evolution of looks that spoke to these different time periods that we were going through. Because the film takes Chuck Barris all the way from his childhood to old age. So I wanted to find those languages for each one of those uh, periods of his life. And that was a very laborious process. But 
we, you know, we found a sort of different, today you would call them LUTs, but this was even before the, the, the day of LUTs specifically. And um, for each one of the periods, and I would, every lunchtime during that entire movie, I would print out stills. I, I, I would take stills, Photoshop them during lunch, send them to the lab with the negative so that when um, the negative came to the DI room, he could use the stills and the looks that we had prepared in prep mm-hmm. for you know mastering our dailies. And we watched dailies on uh, HD dailies. It was my first time ever not watching dailies on film. And we had set up a projection room right next to the editorial. And it was it was an amazing process. It was I was Confessions of a Dangerous Mind was probably the most fun, pleasant shoot of my entire career. And that's you know? Clooney's first feature, right? It was his first feature. As director. We it was a very collaborative relationship. We had this great storyboard artist, Jay uh, Todd, that worked with us, who's also in the movie, by the way. He's the <laughs> contestant on the dating show. Oh, that's cool. Dating game. <laughs> and we storyboarded the entire movie. We shot it the way we planned it. Mm-hmm. And um, that movie is a reflection of exactly the movie that George wanted to make. And it's, uh, you know, it, it he battled with Harvey Weinstein a little because Harvey, as he has done in the past, cut his own version of the movie when George yeah. didn't know and showed it to him and said, what about this? And George said, that's very nice, Harvey, but I made the movie I want to make. The downside of that is that that Miramax at the time put no effort into the promotion of the movie, which is a shame because I think it's a, it's really a special, special movie. I saw it not that long ago and I think it holds up extremely well too. So I think that's a timeless movie and yeah, really, really fantastic. I I know it's not an exact, uh, an exact connection because a lot of, you you did a lot of work and a lot of movies and a lot of jobs uh, between confessions and say drive but I couldn't help but feel that there is a certain amount of moodiness and a certain amount of your signature that comes through on drive that immediately evoked sort of like memories of uh of confessions confessions. and what I was going to say is like uh, I think by that point DI is becoming almost de rigueur it's like it's uh, that you see DI is happening almost all the time and photochemical now is becoming less and less of of a process but can you Tell us about how, um, tell us about Drive. Tell us about uh, how, how that came about. Well, Drive was, um, was, was interesting, you know. It was, um, I had a couple possibilities at the time when Nicholas Winding Refn um, got in touch with me. And one of them was in Spain, and I was, oh, wow, that'd be so great to go to Spain. I was really intrigued by, it's a really interesting uh, 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 screenplay. But there was something about Nick that really intrigued me, and I watched Bronson. And that I movie thought, is bananas. I thought, I got to work with this guy. I got to work with this guy. And, you know, it was his first movie in Hollywood, and he kept saying to me, you know, well, how do we do this a little different? Or, what, you know, what's the, you know, the Hollywood this and that? And he was fascinated with Hollywood, but also very much looking to do his own thing. And that was another one. We only had 35 days. We had... Uh, no second unit to speak of, and he was used to shooting in continuity, and he was wouldn't be able to on this. They shot Bronson in continuity. Um, I'm not 100 percent sure about that, it's but kind I, of a non-linear film. I know most of his movies he tries to shoot in continuity. Wow, uh, and I know that when he did After Mine, he did. Oh, really? That way. It, it was interesting because I, you know, I operated a camera like I do on most of my movies, or had done. And on Drive, I had the luxury of having a Greg Lunsgaard as a B camera, who's a terrific Steadicam operator and, and operator in his own right. And um, so I would set up like second cameras sometimes because I thought, you know, I, I, I really need to protect Nick because he's doing this very lyrical, long, slow kind of pace. And I know they're going to get in the cutting room and they're going to want him to pace up the movie. Do you tend to not have run two cameras? Well, I I actually have done a lot of movies with two cameras. Like most EPs, I prefer to just have one camera because there's always one perfect place to put the camera. Yeah. Having said that, I've often found that I need to run that second camera 
to be able to make a day or to keep somebody on track, mm-hmm. which is, um, it's, it's a blessing the, and a curse. The reality of just getting your day done. It's yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. part of it. I, I, I feel a responsibility to, to, I take the job knowing it's X number of days. They usually shave a few off by the time you start <laughs> and whatever is in my power to make the day I try to do. There's always unforeseen circumstances, but I did on drive. I tried to protect him, thinking they were going to pace up the movie. And there was two financiers on drive, and it was very interesting because when they got to the cutting room, indeed, one of them was like, it's too slow, it's too this. And the other one supported his vision. And he won out. And it went to Khan and it won the award. And he said, see? And I have to say, I, I was really impressed that he actually got to make the movie he wanted to make. I There was a, maybe I'm too cynical or jaded or something but there's a part of me that was embracing this the style of filmmaking we were doing and loving it and yet at the same time i had this feeling like it was going to get subverted but it didn't well and sometimes if you do that if you cover yourself like that it gives them the cover to say we tried it and we prefer it this other way whereas yeah. if you don't do it then they're like why didn't you do blah 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 yeah. you know so so did that guys uh the, did that steady cam ops work not make it into a lot of the film or well, no his steadicam stuff was there and no there, there's there's you know so, so some more of than his that. fair share of stuff but it's the i guess more what i meant was that the that some of the like sort of elongated dolly moves and stuff we did that i yeah. set up another camera just to cover it that didn't make it and he stuck with his with our original plan but working with nick and with ryan was was really inspiring it was it was just a, it was, you, you know, it was, there was always the unexpected. And that was good because he was really also open to ideas. There's a scene in an elevator where uh, Ryan Gosling kills this hitman. And it goes into this kind of weird slow motion yeah. light cue. And that was really something, I have to admit, that I just kind of came up with on the day when we were lighting and... I try to always run stuff through dimmer boards and we were just testing the dimmers and I was like, ooh, you know what? <laughs> and I sh- I built this little cue and I showed it to Nick thinking it was going to be too much, like too much, like I'm imposing mm-hmm. something on the scene. And he loved it and we did it and we went with it. It's a gorgeous was, sequence. He was like, kind of took the scene to a whole other place. So, you know, he he's a... Really fascinating guy to work for right from the beginning and Ryan and, and watch their process. Well, it does seem like you work with a lot of directors who have kind of big personalities who are kind of well-known kind of auteurish directors, you know, David O. Russell, George Clooney. Terry Gilliam. Terry Gilliam. Yeah, yeah I almost forgot about Terry Gilliam. And, and I, uh, again, I could spend a whole day asking you questions about working with Terry Gilliam. It's true. I, I tend to attract the uh, complex ones. <laughs> 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 That's a very diplomatic way to put that. <laughs> well, no, but it, 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 it's been the story of my career. It's like the, if there's a crazy problematic production, I'm probably shooting it. <laughs> so, I mean, is there anything you can say about like working with directors who kind of have, you know, because, you know, there are people who are just all straight down to business or very, you know, whatever. And it's like every one of these people I've just described, I, I feel like they all are known for a very specific process that, that kind of springs from their personality and their movies are amazing. Uh, but it, like, what is it, what is it about working with, with those kinds of like how, I don't, I don't even know what I'm trying to ask here, but like, no, what's, I, what's I, the I, secret? I, what's I, your okay. secret? There, there's, I think, you know, I think I've evolved a lot in my relationship with directors in that I have worked with a lot of um, what would be considered difficult directors or whatever terminology you want to use. And I think early in my career, because I came out of like the art world and everything, I, I think I was, and a lot of times unjustifiably, like hoping that they would come around or I could impose my vision or my, my, my style or whatever on their work. And I've, or, or that I didn't have a clear enough ear about what they were really uh, going after. And I've, you know, it's kind of like, a, a lover relationship. What I've really learned is to sort of have that ear open and really trying to suss out what this person is all about, what they're really 
trying to say. And even if it's, or what they're struggling with maybe, because a lot of times it's a director struggling to find something or to achieve something or to realize something. And you have to, you know, your job is to help them get there. And that's really about listening and perceiving where they're coming from and what they're about. And they're all, in my career, they've all been really, really different. I mean, Brian Singer, Nick Reffin, Terry Gilliam, David O. Russell. I mean, these people are as different as can be, perhaps just similar in their complexity. Speaking about directors, you just worked on a movie which had two directors. Uh, Dexter Fletcher came in and uh, replaced Brian Singer to finish out uh, Bohemian Rhapsody. What's it like changing horses midstream? What's it like, you know, working with uh, starting one way and then going a a different direction? In in the case of Bohemian Rhapsody, it was not as bad as you would think at all. By the time we shut down and then restarted, um, we had the overwhelming majority of the film in the can. There was a couple weeks left of shooting, and when Dexter saw the footage, he got a sense of where we were going with the film and what we were doing, what the idea of the film was and everything like that. He was pretty on board, and he, and he gave me a lot of respect, which was wonderful, because you know I had put my heart and soul into the film up to that point, and the, the, the style of it, the look of it. The, what, what, what stuff did he do? What were the, what parts of the movie did he shoot? Um, did he direct? He, you know, the, 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 probably the biggest chunk that he directed was the stuff with Mary and Freddie in their apartment and the, the, those apartment interiors. That was like his, you know, he did a, some other scenes too, but I'd say that was the bulk of Now, now had, had a lot of that stuff already been architected sort of by uh, yourself and, and Brian Singer before he came in, or was he... Yeah, I mean, I had a pretty good roadmap for what I was going to do there, and, you know, it's a funny story, but initially, when they asked him to take over, he didn't want me to do it. He wanted his own DP, who's named George Richmond, who I, I, I know George. So uh, I called George, and I started explaining to him what my plan was for shooting the rest of the movie. And George was very gracious, but he um, he said, uh, you know, okay, okay, okay. And I, I wasn't quite finished explaining to him, but I had to take my kids to school. And I said, George, let me get my kids to school and I'll call you back and tell you the rest. He said, as soon as you get back from school, tell me what the plan is, the rest of the plan is. And I was driving back from school, the kids' school, and I got the call from um, our producer, Graham King, that... He had spoken to the studio and to Rami Malek and to Dexter. They, Dexter had seen the film because when he, Dexter first said he wanted his own cinematographer, he hadn't seen the movie. But then he saw the movie, and by the time I was driving home, they asked me if I would come back. <laughs> and uh, I said, well, of course I will, you know. So I, um, I, I had a roadmap that was there, and... Dexter, having seen the film, was like, yeah, you know, I, what you guys are doing is great. And he was, uh, you know, he's a, very much an actor's director. And he was very familiar with the subject because he was attached to the show at one time. So he came back and did the last couple of weeks. And uh, it was pretty painless, to be honest. Uh, you know, I'm sure, I, I know it was very difficult for Brian. And Brian had a number of personal issues that were making it really hard for him, which was a shame because it's a subject matter that should have been very close to him. So you know, I'm sure for him to not be able to finish the film was was horrible. But I think um, you know he's very proud of the film that came out, and I think he feels like it's a good reflection of what he started out wanting to make. You know, it's become a very successful movie. Of course, it's closing in on two hundred million dollars at the box office uh, as as of this moment. Uh, I'm I'm sure it'll continue to to rise. And there's a lot of credit being given now to the movie for making Bohemian Rhapsody the most downloaded song of all time, which is another statistic that just just popped out. Uh, one of the things that 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 struck me that came across my social media feed the other day was someone who had gone and taken the final big Live Aid. 
I, excuse me, is, is Live Aid, right? Yeah, okay. the Live Aid concert. There's, yeah. there's so, there were so many different uh, benefit side concerts. side by side. Yes. But yeah, the, the side by side, exactly. Yeah. The, the Live Aid, <clears throat> which I, I remember watching, I remember watching on, on television, you know, many, many years ago, but superimposed, yeah, that over the Bohemian Rhapsody end performance sequence. And you can kind of see split screen what, what you guys shot and what was happening can you talk a little bit about how that came to be, how that uh, rehearsal yeah. and that, well, that shoot happened? You know, the movie begins with a tease of Live Aid and it ends with the performance. And it was broadcast over 13 satellites. They say, some say to close to a billion people um, by the BBC. And it exists on YouTube. So you can watch it on YouTube. You can watch the concert. Um, it's been called the greatest live performance, rock performance of all time. It, that was a real challenge because you you want to do it justice and it's the the climactic scene of your movie, but you, there's not much point in just reproducing Live Aid that's on YouTube and, you know, in a higher quality video format, you know. So the the challenge for us from a storytelling point of view was how do you show the audience something different than they can see on YouTube. And for us, that was very much about why Live Aid was the climactic scene of the movie and where these four characters had gotten to at that point. Like, what were we trying to say in that concert? So, on the one hand, we reproduced it 100% faithfully. The stage is a, is, a, is a duplicate of the stage. Even like the arrangement of the Pepsi cans on the piano. Much to my dismay, I wanted to get rid of the Pepsi, but <laughs> there was a lot of insistence that... Coca-Cola know, man. Brian was... No, Brian was like, there was those Pepsi cups on the piano and they had to be there on the, you know, in the real thing because I wanted to do these beautiful reflection shots. Maybe we could have a few less. <laughs> I felt that was a little too much like product placement, but they were there. So, you know, I, I had to shoot around them. And the choreography, Rami worked with a brilliant movement uh, coach to reproduce the, the choreography, literally, you know, step by step and gesture by gesture with his own little flair. And there's, yeah. there's, there's his own personality in there. But the, the challenge photographically was how you do a different relationship of our cinema audience to the story we're telling than what you were showing on on YouTube, particularly because it's day exterior, so there's not much lighting involved, and the stage itself was purposely very austere because it was a charity event. So it visually wasn't exactly a bonanza. So for us it was putting, putting the audience both in the middle of the stage, in the middle of the characters, as if you're like band member number five, and in doing so, giving the audience, cinema audience, that relationship with the actual audience, which you don't see other than wide crowd shots in the, in the BBC uh, broadcast. So, because one of the things that was remarkable about that was how Queen took what was becoming kind of a dull and you know, endless concert on a really hot, miserable July day <laughs> into this whole other event where they raised more money uh, during the Queen set than they had raised up to that point. So it was a really landmark performance and it was a very important performance for the band as well, personally. So we just wanted to to express that by where we put the camera, what we did with it, and how we related it to the audience. Kind of goes back to what you were saying earlier about how you how you want to you want the camera to be like a character in the movie and how you want it to interact like another person. Yeah, absolutely. We're gonna have to leave it there. Uh, you know, uh, Tom, it has been so much fun. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, I, I've really enjoyed this. Uh, before we go, real quick, is there any place where people can go to find your work? Do you have a website, Twitter, Instagram? There's an Instagram, uh, T S I G E L mm -hmm. T Siegel, that I try to be current on, but I'm not very good about. But it's got some nice images if that's what you like. Uh, I'm hoping to have a little bit of a website next year. But it's just one of those things that when you're shooting movies, you don't 
don't get around. <laughs> well, it's not like we need one so that people know who you are. Your work speaks for itself. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and thank you for having us at your beautiful house. My pleasure. So that was Newton Thomas Siegel. Awesome, awesome guy. And like a lot of the amazing DPs that we get on here, I would love to do a part two with him. We've never done one. I'm going to ask you, the listener, who would you like to see a part two from? Yeah, I think that's great. Uh, I think that we should definitely get some feedback because uh, we'll make a real effort then. Now that we're 30 in, uh, we can uh, start looking at who should come back to do a, you know, we still have like 10 more people, maybe more. No, we have so many in the queue. So, <laughs> but, but, you so know, we, we should get some people back. Hey, so Ben, so short ends, it's that time. All right. So I'm going to do mine. Mine's going to be fast because I feel like it's something people need to dive in on their own. Ooh, what's it, that? It, it, it kind of blows my mind and I feel like it's something I only understand about like 5% of it. And I've spent a few hours kind of digging through this. So, so this is the obsession of the week for you. This is, this is something I've been a little obsessed with, uh, you know, outside of, uh, getting in and out of the Sundance film festival this week and uh, also uh, having a baby, but, um, (laughs) but, uh, there's a famous, uh, Bauhaus artist named Paul Klee. And if you don't know about the Bauhaus movement, look into the Bauhaus movement. It's fascinating. And Paul Klee himself is a, you know, like one of the leaders of it, one of the two main leaders. And I'm not an art historian, so I hope I'm not mangling stuff. But uh, and it's spelled B-A-U-H-A-U-S. Yes. Bauhaus. Yes. Not not to be confused with the band by the same name fronted by Peter Murphy. Yes. That's that's a different Bauhaus. Yeah. They, so they don't have this. So what recently happened was thirty nine hundred pages of his personal notebooks were uh, released online. Whoa. And it is. His teachings, it's like a lot of weird charts and graphs and colors, color theory. Yeah, because it was architecture, it was design, yeah. it was furniture, it was all kinds of stuff. Bauhaus encompassed everything, basically, I don't know if you could say encompassed everything besides film, but it, but it kind of did. But it, it, when he was alive, I don't think they had color film yet, or it might have been the very beginning of it. His teachings and stuff end around 1931. Hmm. So looking at it, to me, it, it's like one of those things where... If you're starting to design a film, a lot of times you're looking for a color palette. You're looking for a jumping off place. And uh, I'm not saying that you could use 2,300 pages of of, color theory of Paul Klee's teachings. But no, but it's it's fascinating and it, it kind of twists your brain in ways. A lot of times you don't you, you look at a painter like Picasso or, you know, who, whoever it is, Jasper Johns, and you don't have 2,300 pages of information to kind of scoop through and understand their entire theory behind everything that they did. And I feel like that's something that every filmmaker should at least have a passing knowledge of. Are these uh, notes, do they have any commentary? Are they unabridged? What is the, what's the scenario? Well, I'm, I'm going to show you some of them. Oh, okay. So there's some color theory right there. Yeah. I mean, it's like heavily annotated. Oh my gosh, it sure is. And okay. So yeah, I can see it. It's diagrams upon diagrams. And- yeah. Wow. Oh, it, it, uh, Paul Cleese is uh, German? Uh, I think he was Swiss. Oh, Swiss. Okay, gotcha. Hold on. Pause. Yes. Hey, we're both right, Ilya. He was Swiss German. All right. <laughs> well, uh, my short end this week is also set in Germany, so to speak. <laughs> it's actually the season two of a awesome series on the Stars Network called Counterpart. Counterpart stars J.K. Simmons as uh, in dual roles, playing uh, two J.K. Simmonses. Yes, it's dueling J.K. Simmons. Oh, you got me with two J.K. Simmons. It's so good. It's so good. And he plays. I. It's hard. It's hard to give the information that you would need to describe this properly without it sounding like cheeseball science fiction. And it is not cheeseball science fiction. It's really, really good drama that just so happens to have a little bit of like sci-fi elements. This is definitely a drama. Definitely, I would say, in the same sort of vein as something like a uh, Man in the High Castle or a Patriot. It feels like really, really premium streaming network original content. And Stars, uh, I don't, I don't know what other original content they do. I su- subscribe to Stars, but this is the only thing I watch. Ash versus Evil Dead. Okay, I mean, well, they're, they're... three seasons of Ash versus <laughs> Evil Dead. Okay, well, I know that's that's right up your alley, but Counterpart is is mine, and this is really fantastic. If you've not seen the show and you like J.K. Simmons, this is going to give you your J.K. Simmons fix. It is uh, chock full of J.K. Simmons, and it's done in a really, really clever way. Interesting. You have me fascinated. So, so Ben, uh, <laughs> so Ben, I think it's the time, the time of the show to thank people. 
Well, firstly, obviously, we want to thank Alana Cody, our phenomenal producer, who is uh, really, really upped our game and uh, now has us uh, working with two editors. And uh, it's 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 uh, it's like a machine now. It's like yes. a it's like we have a staff. It used to just be you and me, and now there's like a staff. I know it's incredible how we've grown. Uh, thank you to Abby Corbett, who if if you edited this, thank you to Ben Katz if you edited this. I don't know who's going to edit this yet. <laughs> <laughs> and as always, thank you to Kay's Alatracci. For 100% of the music that we have in here, you can find Kays' information at musicbykays.com. Ben, where can people find you? Uh, you know, honestly, just find me on Twitter. It's the easiest place. I am at Neptune Salad on Twitter. If you are on any of the other social-related networks except for Snapchat, you can find me on those as well. Uh, you can find me over at uh, Instagram at, at Ilya Friedman. I'm trying to make that a thing, and I spell my name with two L's. It's not my choice. My parents did that to me. Jerks. Yeah, I know, exactly. But uh, you can also find me over at Hot Ride Cameras, the sponsor of the show, uh, where I generally tend to be Monday through Friday. You should just come here and uh, ask him for some free swag. There might be some swag for you. That's oh, right. If, oh. you're, if you're a listener to the show, let us know. Well, tune in very soon for episode 31. That's right. Episode 31. Do you want to say who it is? Should we make it a surprise? I'll just throw it out there. This person uh, was nominated for an Academy Award this year. Ooh, it's fascinating. Thank you very much. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.